all you can hope for is today to be a little bit better than you were yesterday. Anyway, as we know, we learn far more effectively when we're in a good mood. So let's keep it up, Lee. It's really sad that you remember that. But... Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailers Natter, where I am absolutely virtually speechless, giddy as a kipper, because I get to talk to my absolute all-time edgy hero alongside Phil Naylor. <laughs> I get to talk to the wonderful, the marvellous, the magic weaver himself, Miss, well, not Mr. John Jones, Sir John Jones, who I cannot wait to talk to. So welcome, Sir John. Thanks, Emma. It's great to be here. Good to see you again, Phil. And you, and you. We'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> right, so, so John, I mean, I am the kind of the biggest fan you have. I am a Jonesette. I've self-titled Jonesette. I've just made that up just now. Um, but for those of you, those people who haven't heard you speak or what you've done or where you've been, you know, your career, can you just give us a quick overview of your career to date? Wow. Uh, career to date... I suppose starting from, uh, I, went, I went to university, um, I went to Bangor University, uh, and for my sins did French and Latin. Um, but I, I kind of then did stay there to do a PGCE as it was then, um, because it, I think 1974 it was, first year it was compulsory for teachers to have it, because up until then you didn't have to have a PGCE. So I stayed. I mean, I stayed at Bangor mainly to play football, Phil, because I was playing football for the university and for Welsh universities. And I thought, well, I'll have another year and I can, uh, I can play football for another year. So I did my PGCE and I thought, you know what? I absolutely love this teaching malarkey. Um, and then what happened is when everyone was applying at the end of the thing for jobs, um, I got a call from my old head teacher, uh, at the school where I'd gone and, and said um, the, the languages teacher had, had gone. There was only, it was only small schools, one languages teacher. He was a Catholic priest called uh, Luke Dumbbell and he's gone. And uh, will you come and take his place? And I, and I kind of, so I kind of fell into it in, in, in many ways um, because I have this thing about, you know, people, I, I love Simon Sinek, you know, his golden circles that you've got to have a why and you've got to, da, da, da. and, and I'm, I'm not sure we should be that obsessed with why, because I think you grow into the why, you know, what you've got to make sure is whatever you want to do, you love doing. And because you love doing it, and this is Ken Robinson, isn't it? The, when you love doing something, you do it and you get better at it. So you become proficient. And, and that PGCE, I went to a lovely school called Clanroost Comprehensive in the Ogwin Valley at the foot of Mount Snowden. I mean, it was just stunning. And, uh, and the children were wonderful. And I just had such a great time. Although, in a strange way, the staff room, uh, they had a male and a female staff room. They were separate, which was really strange. And, uh, but in, Phil, in the male staff room, they had a snooker table. 
So, um, you know, I had a great time and I became really good at snooker that year. And um, so I kind of fell into teaching and then thought, ah, I really love this. And uh, so I went off to teach at my old school, a bit daunting because you sat at the first lunch, you know, with, with all the staff who taught you. That was, that was really kind of strange. Um, and then I, uh, I kind of got into, you know, moving. I mean, I wasn't ambitious in a way. I mean, I was a main scale teacher, I think for about seven years, you know, and I remember when I was ahead, people used to come to me and say, you know, it's, a, it's two years now and I need to get, I need to move on. And I said, well, I was seven years as a main scale teacher. I just loved what I was doing. And then all of a sudden things happened and um, I ended up as a, as a head teacher um, of a school in, um, in St. Helens. And I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I taught French most of the time, but I really wanted to be a drama teacher and a history teacher and ended up doing a load of PE as well because sport is a passion of mine. So um, I ended up as a head teacher in St. Helens at a lovely school. And then that school, I knew it when I went to it that it was going to amalgamate with another school. And uh, before it amalgamated, um, my dream job came up, which was back in Kirby in Liverpool, where I grew up. And, uh, and I just knew this job, you know, had my name on it. Um, because I remember once promising a Catholic priest in Kirby that if I did leave, one day I'd come back and give something back to the community. And of course, although I loved the job in St. Helens, I had to go and be ahead in Kirby. So I ended up there and I stayed for nine years. And, uh, and I, th I think, don't they say it takes about three years to turn a, a primary school around, about five years to turn a secondary school around. And, and they reckon universities are still working on it, you know, because it's hard to move universities. But um, it was a nine year job really, because it was in something of a bad way when I went there. And, um, and then I went off, just really because of the threshold adventuring thing, Emma, um, I, I'd never taught in a school um, which had a sixth form. And I thought I'd love to do a school that went 11 to 18. And, and one came up in Sefton. So I went off to there. And it was at that stage that, um, that the knighthood arrived and, the, and then the phone started to ring with lots of people saying, come and tell the story. And the rest is history, really, because the phone still rings, thankfully. <laughs> well, I just love hearing you talk about Liverpool, because that's where I trained. So when I, I did a four-year course up in Liverpool. So I oh, where did you go? I was in Toxteth, Croxteth and Norris Green. <laughs> no, they're lovely. My dad's from Toxteth. Is and I, I lived in Norris Green. Well, um, he's in Kirby. I live down in Egbeth, uh, near Iron Marsh. That's where I train. So I absolutely love Liverpool. In fact, I think I left a little bit of my heart there. I, I'm, I genuinely miss it every single day. If, if I could move anywhere, that's where I'd go. But well, it's a wonderful city. And uh, I mean, I, obviously I'm biased. And Kirby is the most amazing town. I mean, it's got everything. It's, if you like, the perfect comprehensive town. It's got, it's got everything in it. Um, you know, it's not skewed one way or the other. It's just, uh, and Knowsley itself is, is uh, an incredible place. Oh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very biased, but I live in Manchester now. 
Um, but, but fortunately, I'm an Everton fan. It, it's not healthy to live in Manchester and support Liverpool, but they kind of uh, they tolerate Evertonians, so I'm okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, now you can probably viewers, listeners can't see this, but over my shoulder is my favourite book of all time. I'm just going to reach, reach and get it, John. There we go. Look, never knowingly more than six feet away from a copy. Um, your magic weaving business book is my favourite, favourite hands down education book of all time. And you can see for those bookshelves, all I do all day is read education books. This is still the one to beat. Um, it's the core text for our trust. It's the core text for our skit across four counties. You know, everybody who's anybody in the Midlands uses that book now. Um, but not everybody knows what we mean by a magic weaver. So can you kind of describe to listeners what you mean by um, a magic weaver and what it means to be one? Wow. I mean, that's the million dollar question, isn't it, Emma? Um, I think... Um, it's funny, we, we were interviewing, we're doing a tendering exercise. I'm, I'm uh, on the trust board of Everton in the community the other day, and we were doing an interview, and this guy, he said, um, he said um, how, how did he describe it? He, he, was, he was trying to explain something about getting the right person, and he said, getting the right person is like the offside rule in football. No one can explain it, but when it happens, you recognize it. And, and I thought, you know, in a way, that, that's what magic weaving is, isn't it? You know, that you could kind of give this list, this definition, this long list. And I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm always in favor of doing lists because they're a bit lazy, really, because um, you can just chuck anything in and hope that some of it resonates with whoever reads it. But um, I, I think when you're in school, that what, what I'm keen to say is that we're not magic weavers all the time. We have bad days, we have good days, we have brilliant lessons, we have absolutely awful lessons. That magic weaving is, is something a bit like the muse, you know, that it visits you. And you know, when you've just had a fantastic lesson and one of the kids goes out and said, oh, sir, that was brilliant. Or the bell goes at the end of it, as you know, Phil, and they'll say, oh, do we have to go, sir? You know, that's that's magic weaving so what i'm not going to say is there are magic weavers and then there are other people because everybody is capable of magic weaving and the great thing about magic weaving is in many ways it's uh, it's what basil falter used to call the bleeding obvious <laughs> it's it's doing it's doing you know david brailsford's definition when he was what well, he still is the olympic cycling uh, coach, but when he was uh, at Sky, he said, Excellence is doing a small thing, doing it brilliantly, doing it relentlessly, and doing it for a reason. So, what I tried to do in the book is just highlight the small things that are magical, that make a huge difference. And they are, I mean, you know, when you've read through it, it's just those tiny things like smiling at a kid on the corridor about just noticing a briefing that, you know, some, some girl's got a netball hat-trick last night. And even though you don't know her, you go out your way to bump into her that day and say, well done. It is so simple to do it. But the key is it has to be relentless. You know, I always say that you can't be, um, 
you can't be a magic weaver on Monday and Attila the Hun on Tuesday. Because <laughs> kids have great memories. So the message is we're all capable of it. And we're all magic weavers. Um, it's just that it doesn't stay with us all the time, every lesson, every day. I remember um, a teacher coming to me and saying, John, I'm with you. I know I should be delivering outstanding lessons and I want to, but I can't deliver. We, I think that was a school we had six periods in the day. So I can't deliver six outstanding lessons. You know, I'll, I said, no, you can't. I said, you'd be exhausted at the end of the day. I said, but could you give me 10 minutes of outstanding in each lesson? And he said, well, yeah, I can do that. I said, well, that's what I want. Give me the 10 minutes of the magic and the rest will fall into place because I don't want you doing 10 minutes or, or any more than 10 minutes of the work in an hour long lesson. I want them doing the 50 minutes work. You do the 10 minutes of the magic. And so it's, it's very simple lessons like that. And um, all I, I remember I had difficulty writing the book, you know, because I always felt when I started writing, and I love it now, and you're a great writer yourself, Emma, you know, and I don't know if Phil's dabbled in, in blogs or whatever, but, you know, the, um, I, I used to think every time I sat down, I had to do a university essay, you know, and it had to be erudite and full of posh words and all that stuff. And then I remember I was struggling to just get the thing going. And uh, this old mentor I had, he just said, John, just imagine you're standing on a platform speaking to some teachers in the staff room about teaching and just write the way you speak. And uh, it just flowed off the pen. I just imagined I was talking to an audience. And uh, I think what I tried to do is make it a conversation rather than just an essay on some erudite aspect of education. Does that make sense? Perfect sense, because that's what I love about it. Because I read so many things that are obviously so highfalutin and incredibly erudite, as you say, but actually they don't land and they don't resonate because they're not said in such a way that they that it that it actually means something. The meaning is lost in the in the kind of trying to be too clever about it. Actually, yeah. when you when you're genuinely saying something that you truly believe in you can just speak from the heart. And that's what I think that the book does for me. And that's why it lands with so many people because it is like having you in the room um, explaining all the kind of magic parts about teaching and learning. And, and it's, you hear more when somebody's writing in a way like they're speaking than if somebody's writing in a way that's dry and dusty and, and inaccessible. So, that's why we use it at every level as well. We use it with students who are entering the profession all the way through to, you know, time poor CEOs who are reading multiple things. And it just cuts through everything because it's a voice, a, a, a warm, meaningful human voice that cuts through everything. That's, I think that's why we love it. <laughs> well, well, and you know, Emma, you, you, you have that ability as well. I mean, I, somebody said to me once, you know, if you're a writer, what, what are you really? And, and I said, well, I, I like to think I'm a translator of theory because there's, there's loads of theory in education and it disappears into the realms of gobbledygook. You know, um, I think it was at Walter Galley. 
he, he talks about essentially contested concepts, you know, that we use these words, personalization, you know, assessment, you know, differentiation. And, and then you get these erudite pieces. And, and when you've read it, you don't, you feel like you understand it less than you did before you read the book. But I think what we've got to do, and it's the responsibility of, of all writers, really, to translate that theory. You know, I don't mind that there are people in academic ivory towers who are doing the research for us. That's the gift that they give us. They're kind of proving what we in our guts know to be true. Um, so we need the research. But then we have to translate the theory into practice. This is what it looks like on a corridor in a school at break time when it's raining outside. On a wet Thursday after wet play. Oh, yeah. With a bunch yeah. of 30 little <laughs> six-year-olds who've all lost the identical same jumper after PE. <laughs> like, right, I'm going to move on to our next question. I'm going to have to read this one off the paper because I did actually plan this one. <laughs> Here we go. Russell the paper. It says... And this is, this is true. I, you've mentioned the concept of the threshold adventurer already. I absolutely love that concept of the threshold adventurer. And I've put, can you explain what a threshold adventurer does? And in an increasingly prescriptive approach to aspects of our practice, how can we ensure that our adventurers don't end up getting lost or overlooked? And the quote that I pulled out was, you may like them or hate them, quote them or disagree with them, but you cannot ignore them because it's the crazy ones who change things and create progress. I absolutely love that. So can you just, what's a threshold adventurer? Well, well, I've, I've got to credit that quote to, to uh, Apple because that's, if you remember the old advert uh, that Apple did, you know, when Apple were crazy enough to think they could take on the might of Microsoft and compete with them on, on equal terms, you know, people just said to Steve, are you crazy? You know, don't be daft, you know. But what they did is they pitched their, their message to people who like to think differently. So they didn't say, we make computers. and Because a lot of people, you know, they make this mistake. You know, if you say to somebody, you know, so, uh, so what do you do? They'll tell you what they do. They tell you where they do it. They tell you how they do it. They don't tell you why they do it. Whereas what... What uh, Apple did there is they, they, they went straight to the why. We, we think differently. Do you? Come and join us. You know? and so that's why the threshold adventurers, um, they do think differently. Um, I think it was, if I can remember the quote, Steiner said, a lust for knowledge and an ache for understanding is incised in the best of men and women, as is the calling of the teacher. There is no craft more privileged to awaken in another human being powers and dreams beyond your own, to induce in others a love for that which one loves, to make of one's inward present their future. This, he said, is a threshold adventure like no other. So it's kind of, it's okay in threshold adventuring. You know, I used to call my school improvement plan, I mean, it's an old gag this, but I used to call it the Christopher Columbus model. Because when Christopher Columbus set off, he didn't know where he was going. <laughs> he actually thought he did, but he didn't. And when he got there, he didn't know where he was. He thought it was somewhere different than it actually was. And when he came back and they said, where have you been? He didn't know. So that's okay. You know, what I'm saying, when you're threshold adventuring, you do step out into the unknown. It's, it's okay not to know. And... Um, 
I, I really do feel the people I feel most uncomfortable around are the people who believe they have the truth and they know. And, and I feel really uncomfortable with that because I've got, I think, I hope I've got that frustrating ability to always see both sides of an argument. And, and what threshold adventurers do is they just love the questions. And, and they, they think that maybe down some distant day, they'll arrive at the answer, but maybe not. It's okay, because the journey of loving the questions is just as exciting. So, you know, all this thing, I mean, you should know why you want to do something. But like I said before, that why can change. My why has changed through my life, you know, and it's okay to change your why. In fact, you should continually revisit the why and your mission to make sure that it still means as much as it does to you. Does that make, I don't know if that's answered your question, but it's a good answer to some question, isn't it? Do you know what? It's virtual, and I can't believe you've just said this, because I've literally just written the first chapter of something that I'm writing, and it pretty much says a load of those things about adventuring and not knowing where again and revisiting your why. And I'm sitting here going, well, that must be all right then, if Sir John says it. <laughs> the right time but what's really interesting are you saying is about not knowing the truth phil and i were talking off air just before you came on about how he and i are constantly not particularly not you know thinking that we've got all the answers and loving the questions weren't we phil yeah he's just going to unmute we said sorry we certainly were we certainly were can i i was just nodding along to all that and writing lots of things down can i just share emma at this point Am I allowed to share uh, mine and Sir John's history um, in terms of how we, how we first met? I think the listeners want to hear this, don't they? And I feel like I, I feel like I have mentioned this a couple of times in let, podcasts let, previously. Let that beautiful moment. I feel like I should key in some like romantic music. <laughs> it, it's that music that Simon Mayo used to use when he did those. You know, he just had that gentle music and Simon Mayo's confessions. It's like that, isn't it? Anyway, I'll you, so I'll tell you what else it is, Bill. Before you tell this story. I think, you know, people often, and, and in fact, I think you did this as well, Emma. Do you remember that time you introduced me? Oh, and, yeah, uh, people, people come really nervous and they're like, I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that. And uh, what should I say? And I always, now I always say, listen, people aren't interested in what you've done or where you've been. They're interested in who you are. Yeah. And that it's, it's actually far more interesting to an audience to know that you're a mad season ticket holder at Everton, that you love red wine, that you climb mountains, and that, you know, you, you played guitar in a duo, semi-professional. That's what they're interested in. Who you are is so much more important than, than what you are or what you've done. I, I really do believe that. So what Phil's going to do now is help the listeners understand more about who I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, do you know what, it is like we've rehearsed this. You couldn't have set that up any better because I just wrote down next to that, I put about people don't necessarily remember what you did, but how you made them feel. And for me to recall this story from such a long time ago, um, yeah, it's absolutely about that. And what, what John said then about who you are, not what you are, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of chime when I tell this story. So I think we're going back 21 years. We're going back to when I was a fledgling football coach. Now, those of you that are familiar with John and his work will know that he was a football coach as well. I spent many years coaching football teams, um, you know, in schools and all sorts of things. He was, and he, obviously, he's mentioned his guitar passion as well, but we'll come to that. We're both frustrated guitarists as well. Um, so 21 years ago, I'm standing there, you know, on a Saturday morning in Wigan, 
coaching football, trying to cut my teeth as a soon to be hopefully professional football coach. And at the end of a session, you know, you get chatting to some of the parents. So you have a little bit of a chat with some of the parents. And, and I, I was drawn to one particular parent, John, particularly, who was offering me lots of tips and advice about coaching. And we'd chat about football and, you know, we'd, we'd criticise Wigan, as I'm still doing. You know, <laughs> I have to check this, check checks date, are Wigan still solvent um, before this goes out? You know, do you remember Wigan? So mm-hmm. standing down, we're chatting away, having conversations about football. And this is what John's saying about who you are, not what you are. He didn't even let it slip that he was a teacher, let alone a head teacher, till sort of three, four, five months into this when I started to talk about, well, this is kind of the Labour government time. We're thinking about, you know, perhaps I could go into a career in teaching. And, you know, and he just happened to mention, you know, that he was a head teacher and he offered me some advice about what kind of things you could do, where you could train. So I ended up going to Edge Hill, which is, you know, reasonably local to where he was at the time, to go and train to be a teacher. And we carried on this conversation. Anyway, I've gone into teachers. This will be about 2001. By about 2003, 2004, we're having an inset training day at St. Hilda's Roman Catholic Girls High School. Now, inset training then was about two hours in the morning and you were straight in by period three, teaching year 11. So we're doing this. And Bernadette, who was the head, sent me the, the plan through. And we've got a speaker coming in, Sir John Jones. And I thought, well, I'm very excited about this. I can't wait to hear, you know, a motivational speaker. And it's, and anyway, I'm walking into the, to the hall to wait for this speech and in walks this parent of this child that I've been talking to for the last six months about football as Sir John Jones, the education, you know, celebrated author, Knight of the Realm. And I'm just like absolutely flabbergasted that he had never ever deemed to mention that he was, well, he mentioned his head teacher later on, but certainly hadn't mentioned any of the work that he'd done across the country. And he's absolutely right. I had no real idea who he was in terms, sorry, what he was in terms of his professions and jobs and things like that. But I certainly know how he made me feel at that time. And I probably wouldn't be here now as a, I don't mention this either, John, as a UA for A licensed football coach, you know, that I don't even use anymore. You've got the A badge. I've got the A badge. I've got the A badge in 2007 with Roy Keane Keane and Peter Beardsley were on my, uh, were on my year. They were down at Lillishall doing the badges. Fantastic. Done. As, well, you can, as you can see by my, my physical, know how big that is. I hope the listeners know how big that is to get the A. That, that's oh, they do. I tell them. I tell them. I tell them every week. They, they certainly do. I never <laughs> stop worrying about it. <laughs> but what a story that! And if we get time, Emma, later on, we'll also tell the story of um, the joke that John did at that, which has led with me for twenty-one years as well. But yeah. It's things that stick with you in your journey. So I have to give John massive credit for the reason that I'm sat here currently. You know, as deputy head of a school. And as a proud UEFA A license holder. So publicly, thank you, Sir John. So are you still coaching? I mean, are you using the A? Because are you involved no. still at Wigan or are you? No? No. So, uh, sorry, Emma, we just got off into football again, as I do most weeks. Um, no, because, because of kids, that sounds awful, doesn't it? But trying to juggle between having two kids and doing that as well. And the irony of this, and you'll, you'll appreciate this. So yeah. I had to kind of give it up because the kids were younger. Now the, the eldest is in year seven. And he cannot understand for life. And he's always having to go at me. You what? You've given up doing football to go and be a deputy head in the school. You know, my mates would think it was really cool if you were still working at Wigan or Burnley or Blackburn or wherever it was. I'm like, hang on. This is the reason why I had to stop it. I couldn't juggle doing that and parenting. But we talk about it at work because um, my head teacher, who won't mind me saying this, combines the two. He's the manager of FC United. So he's actually the the manager of FC United, but uh, he manages, manages the two. But he hasn't got an air license, but we don't talk about it. 
<laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> let, let, me, let me finish that story because our Ben at the time, I mean, he's a really able sports person, Ben. Um, I mean, they all are the kids, but Ben was, you know, really kind of beginning to excel, but he lacked a lot of confidence. And uh, he used to love you. And when I, I pinned him down once, I said, so why do you like Phil, Ben? He said, because he makes you feel like you're good. And I thought, that's the secret. You just tapped into his belief system. And when Phil was standing watching, he was a good player. You know, which, which is just, that's magic. You see, that's magic, Weavik. It's called, you know, inspiration is from the Latin inspiro, which is to breathe life into somebody. And there are certain people, there are certain things that we do that just breathe life into somebody and give you that extra yard, that extra, you know, desire to tackle or whatever it is. And you had that. And that's what he meant, you know, without being able to put it that way. That, and sadly, you know, I mean, I, you know, I played football as well. Not, you know, not to, uh, I was played in the Welsh League. So it was kind of semi-professional level. But I remember different coaches I played for, there were some who would just suck the life out of you. You know, and probably didn't realize they were doing it, but they thought that being the regimental sergeant major and pointing out all your weaknesses and having a go at you and throwing things at you was the way to motivate. Unbelievable. But you, Ben, said made him feel like a good player. Well, there you go. Now, if he could make me feel like a good player now, that would be great. That'd be a, I want a story. <laughs> that would be... <laughs> Sorry, Emma, we will, bring, we will bring it back to education. We, we will. We will. Beginning to wonder if there's a connection between football coaching and teaching because obviously Dublin Mob's just written that book all about football coaching and teaching. John Jones, football coach, Bill Naylor, a coach, <laughs> yeah, yeah. a coach of sorts. Maybe this, maybe this is the untapped resource is football coaching into teaching. This is the this is the route. Well, well, Emma, Emma, it is because you know what, what I, I, I just call you. If you're a teacher or a coach, hey, if you're a parent, you're a high-performance coordinator. That's what you are. You're about high-performance. You want to bring out the best in everybody, in whatever they do. doesn't matter what they're doing. And that certainly is at the core of teaching. It's certainly the core of coaching. But actually, I mean, it's a story of life, isn't it? Are you the kind of person who can bring out the high-performance? I mean, and we call that potential, don't we, in people? And that's why Brailsford said, you know, and the way you do that is just get them to concentrate on small things, doing them brilliantly, doing them relentlessly, doing them for a reason. And you get the accumulation of all those. I mean, they call it in the Olympic uh, coaching team marginal gains, don't they, Phil? You know, but that accumulation creates amazing results. It's, and it's such a simple formula. Whereas, you know, we, we don't always seem to be able to grasp that, I don't think, in schools. You know, and, and we're too quick to, I mean, one of my, I mean, I've got some kind of big thoughts that have come across me, you know, in lockdown when we've had a bit more time. Certainly, if you're not in a full-time job, you've had a bit more time to, um, to think about things. And the, the growth fixed mindset thing, I think the fixed mindset still haunts our system. You know, it came out when all that exam fiasco last year, it's coming out now. This notion that some have got it and some haven't got it. And the sad message that if you haven't got it, you'll never have it. It just haunts some people's thinking. 
So, you know, the growth, whereas growth mindset, I mean, Carol Dweck, I mean, I always believed it, but Carol Dweck gave the science to it, didn't she? You know, with, with her wonderful book that, that everybody has the potential to succeed. And, um, and Sir Ken Robinson, you know, uh, God bless his soul now. Sir Ken was my hero, one of my heroes. And, uh, and he was, but you know, he was born in the same year as me. And uh, he's a big, he was a big Everton fan. And, uh, and he's from Liverpool. He, he lived in Speller Lane, opposite Goodison Park. Wow. So, you know, he, um, and he, you know, he talks about, all you've got to do is find out what somebody's passionate about. Get them good at it. And then give them a dose of what he calls, uh, iman- uh, not just imagination, but um, I can't remember his phrase now, um, where you actually turn your imagination into reality. Um, and, he's, and he calls that creativity. And uh, if we could just get the whole of our teaching force into a serious growth mindset about seeing this potential in all of our kids, then, you know, I think it would transform classroom practice completely. But sadly, we're still into grades A down to E or whatever it is, nine down to, I, I just, and I disperse sometimes. I mean, that whole exam fiasco. I mean, do you know, my, my view is we only have, I'm on a soapbox now and I don't want to be. I thought to myself, when I'm doing this podcast, I'm not going to get on a soapbox. Do you to pull you off the soapbox, <laughs> Didn't even to get that in the sheep crook and just. <laughs> yeah, let me just say one thing though, I, we, I could not believe the suspicion that was around over teacher assessment. I, I mean, we have exams because I've always believed the system doesn't trust teachers, so we've got to have exams because they'll just give kids amazing grades. No, 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 no. So in other words, it's based on mistrust. And that's absolutely, you know, it's garbage. You and I know that actually teacher assessments, I mean, I think they should spend all the money they spend on exams on really top-class moderation of teacher assessments and get the teachers involved, you know. And, you know, we, we know of what our kids are capable. It's just that the whole system, I mean, when you look at the history of it, for goodness sake, I mean, pre-war, Basically, the places at Oxford and Cambridge and Yale and Harvard, they were just occupied by the aristocracy. You know, the, the, you know your lineage. If you were from the right family, you went to the right school, you got in. You know, I mean, it, was, it wasn't like you were able enough. You just got in. Now, thankfully, post-war, that changed. But I think, is it Bob Markovitz? Uh, he's written a great book called The Meritocracy Trap because we... Um, we kind of wanted to move to a meritocratic system where if you're able, you know, you, you rise to the surface, you rise to the top. But he said, what's happened is, you know, those wealthy people and now the middle class people have, have kind of invested so much of their own personal resource and money into their kids passing exams that we've just got a similar system now. And, and that the you know, when, when they did that crazy algorithm last year, it just showed that exams show your background. So it's almost like the old system. Uh, and and I, I, it just makes me so angry that we write off so many kids because 
you know, like, like them or loathe them, exams are not just about a grade on a piece of paper now. Sadly, to many people, they're about how intelligent you are and your worth as a human being almost. And that's tragic, you know, and we should start asking the question, you know, not are you intelligent, but in what ways are you intelligent? Because you and I know that there are multiple intelligences and our system just decides to zero in on deductive reasoning. And, and that's centuries old. So there ended the lesson. I've had me say on exams. I, I just wish the teacher unions, my, one of my other pipe dreams was that we only had one union for teachers and we were all in it. What a powerful group of people that would be. And we just put our foot down and said, teacher assessment is the future. You know, I mean, I think it's in Canada. They, they test the kids on uh, literacy and numeracy or English and maths. And the rest is down to teacher assessment. I mean, it's happening out there in the world in enlightened countries. And we're still slavishly adhering to, to the great God examinations. One day, one afternoon, one time, doesn't matter how you're feeling, you've got to prove your worth as a person. Is terrifying, isn't it? Judgment day. There ended the lesson. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was, I, something that you said about the growth mindset and children's achievement, though, was resonating with a conversation I was having with Sam Strickland the other day, where we were trying to kind of nail down what great teachers were and what great teachers did. And we kind of came to the conclusion that a really great teacher is an, is an uber parent who knows stuff as well about individual subjects, that you love those kids. You love those kids in your class the way that you would kind of love your own kids. You want the best for them. You want to move their thinking forward. You want to open every door for them. But you also happen to have a load of specific subject knowledge that you're trying to teach them as well. And we were trying to talk about what separates a good teacher from a great teacher. And it's, we said it was the one that was the uber parent, the one that just wants so much more for every single kid in their class, just like you would as a parent for your own kids. You want the absolute best for your kids and I don't know whether yeah. we were barking up the wrong tree or <laughs> it was a nice discussion. <laughs> yeah, who, who was it said? I can't remember. I was reading about it the other day. He called it, I think it was Vinny. He called, it was one of the, the big people in education and uh, he called it the Vinny effect. He's got, a, I think it was his grandson and it was called Vincent. Yeah. And uh, he said, so and when, it, when Vincent arrived, he said it, it, was, it was a joy to become a grandparent for the first time. But then, and he said, so whenever I then went into schools, it was always, is this good enough for Vinnie? Yeah. And he called it the Vinnie effect. So that kind of undermine, it underpins what you're saying there, doesn't it, Emma? It's, it's the Vinnie effect. Is it, if it's not good enough for my kids, it's not good enough for yeah. these kids. And the other thing is, now, now I've got three, and they're three very, very different children. I also look at schools and, and the system and think, is it good enough for every single one of them in their individual little quirks and their little different ways that they think and the little different ways that they work? Uh, anyway, I digress. Hey, hey Emma, Emma, you've broken the golden rule of parenting. What's who is it? Who is it? It might have been Woody Allen said, you shouldn't have more children than you have arms. Let's just say. Because yeah. there's always one on the loose in Tesco's. Isn't there? There's always one of mine that's feral. You never quite know which one it's going to be. Let's just say that three was not necessarily in the plan. Let's put it like that. <laughs> just leave that there. <laughs>
Oh God! Right. You... Having one, who's it? Having one child makes you a parent, and having two makes you a referee. I've got, a, I've got a jumper that actually says "sibling referee" on it. So you lot <laughs> are the football coaches, but I am the ref, basically. <laughs> right. Let's move on. Um, you've, you've mentioned a lot about pandemic and assessment and and um, uh, exams. So I'm going to skip a question, and I, I'm going to go on to this bit about. Uh, the quote where you talk about worn out by the sheer effort of survival being kind of one of the things that really strangles development and thinking in school. So at the moment, obviously every head teacher, every senior leader in school is kind of basically worn out by the sheer effort yeah. of survival during this pandemic. So what advice would you give them? What, or what support or things would you say to them at this moment when they're in that kind of eye of the storm? Um, let me just see if I can bring, I did a, um, I did a little blog and, um, what I did is I came up with a little list, which I don't carry around in my head. Um, and I'm just wondering if I have the list. No, I don't. Yeah. What, what I was kind of trying to say is that, that we've come to this moment, haven't we? Where, I mean, people, I mean, I'm a, I'm a chair of governors at two schools for me since. So I'm, I'm kind of, and I'm also on the trust board uh, of a MAT, a multi-academy trust. So I'm still in day-to-day -day contact all the time with, with schools and so on. And people are exhausted. I mean, it's absolutely exhausting. I mean, there are pluses. I mean, I think in terms of the use of information technology or in, in, in the use of kind of the technology to enhance teaching, the, the pandemic um, has kind of moved our practice and thinking on about five years. It's catapulted us to a, a, a state where I wanted to be quite a few years ago because I don't think we've really tapped the potential of the technology in terms of teaching and learning. But um, I think there are one or two pluses like that, but in general, people are exhausted. And so I think, I think we have to... I mean, I, I'm not sure... I don't like the word well-being. I only I don't like it because I think it means happy, and uh, and I think we're almost too frightened to use the word happy. So we have a coordinator of well-being. I'd rather be a coordinator of happiness, you know. And so how do you make how do you make people happy, you know? And and if they're exhausted, you know, you've got to tackle that. I think certainly as a leader, haven't you? I mean, and it's simple things again. It, it's like saying like, you know, every week or every couple of weeks, every month, half term, just simply saying what this week stopped us doing our job effectively. You know, what's getting in the way? And then having the courage as a leader to ditch it. You know, that, that I, and, and things like, I mean, and this is what drives me up the wall about Ofsted. There's loads of good practice in school, but they want to see evidence of good practice. Now, the evidence is what kills you. That's the exhausting bit. Yeah. The good practice, we love doing, and we get on with it, and the kids thrive. But when you start burning people, well, I want to see evidence of it. That's when people get exhausted. You know, I think we should have right down to minimalist, uh, minimalist uh, lesson plans. Um, I mean. If a computer can do it, um, 
in, you know, better than a human, or never mind better than a human, but if a computer can do that task, then let it do it, you know, every time. And I also think that, I mean, and I think we're, we're beginning from my, you know, views from the outside on the online learning, that really, if you've got, if you've got a brilliant teacher who can produce an outstanding piece of pedagogy for 15 minutes on, online, then there's no reason why we should have another seven teachers trying to do the same 15 minutes on other computers with other groups of kids. It just seems ludicrous to me. I mean, I remember I hit on this when I was a head teacher, when we had a really, we had some um, flu, really, it kind of struck the school down. And so the maths department, which was about, uh, about 10 people, we were down to like three people. I mean, it was that bad, you know. And, uh, and we suddenly said, well, why don't we put all the kids in the hall? And thankfully, we had the most amazing, the best maths teacher. We had some great maths teachers, but the best one, is the best maths teacher I ever, uh, I ever came across. And I said, well, look, why don't, if we put them all in the hall, will you teach them? <laughs> and and the, the other two people, plus a few support people and, and myself and a few senior staff, we were kind of facilitators. And it was magical. Because every kid in that room got a dose of magic weaving for 15 minutes off this teacher. And it suddenly struck me that we're still tied to this idea that it's got to be one room, 30 kids, one teacher, one lot of preparation, one lot of delivery. It's absurd. So I'm hoping that at least with the online experience and with us starting to ask the kind of questions I'm asking myself now, we can move to those practices. Um, because I really do think that, you know what, when I, I, I asked that question, I think I might have asked it in the book, and I think it was Ian Gilbert, uh, Ian Gilbert uses a title in his book. Um, um, Sir, why do I need to teach you when I've got Google? Um, which is a fabulous question, isn't it? And, um, you know, that teacher then didn't try and answer the question, just said, brilliant question. And then what I call, let the silence do the learning. Just leave the silence for the kids to come into. And apparently he, he filled the silence and he said, teachers are stupid to the teacher. And the teacher, he knew the rules of behavior management because the rules of behavior management, I think, and this teacher knew them, are um, you've got to be a, an actor, not a reactor. So... The teacher stayed calm and said, well, I am a teacher. Would you like to develop that point? And this kid said, well, yeah, teachers are the only people on the planet who ask you a question to which they already know the answer. He said, that's stupid. And when you think about it, it is absurd, isn't it, really? Um, so I love the follow-up to that story, by the way, John. I love the follow-up to that when you tell that one. I'm sure you said it's like someone getting off the underground um, in London and saying uh, to a stranger, can you tell me the way to the Ritz? And they go, yeah, it's just to the left, uh, turn at the, at the first block. And you go, you're right. Correct. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I already get, knew the answer. You'd get arrested, wouldn't you, Phil? Yeah. yeah guess what, so, player? Guess what's in my head? That's, yeah, well, that's what he said. The lad said, therefore, teaching is, no, therefore, learning is, let's guess what's in the teacher's head. And he said, I know what's in the teacher's head. And he held his iPad up. He said, I've got Google. Now, he's hit on a really serious point there. We don't need to be walking encyclopedias anymore. I mean, in, in, you know, 110 years ago, we needed to be. People couldn't read and write. You know, the only person who was capable of those skills often was the priest or the vicar in the village 
And so you were the walking encyclopedia and all you did is you passed what was in your head into their heads. Now, do you recognize that model? Because that's still going on. Google is a global brain. But what I love, what I love was the teacher still didn't answer the question. And Mary put her hand up and she said, you're struggling with the answers to that Google question, aren't you, sir? And uh, I love deep humility in a teacher is fantastic. Even when you do have an answer, you say, you're right, Mary, I've no idea. And she said, well, she said, you see, I'm going to go to university to study history because Mrs. Smith didn't teach me history. She taught me the love of history. And Google can teach you history all day long, far better than most of us can teach history because it'll have video clips, it'll have all sorts of things. But it can't give you a love of history. And that's Mrs. Smith's job. And that's what she did. And that's our job. Now, I think passing on the love of something will be less stressful than just thinking that you have to pass all this knowledge because you don't need it. I mean, I love, you know, the people who've seriously flipped learning. You know, I was in a school not long ago where the maths department, the kids learn the maths on their own online and they do the homework in school. And the teacher goes around as a facilitator helping them to see if they've understood the concepts. It's almost like DIY maths and the homework is done. I mean, they're simple concepts, but I think, I hope lockdown creates far more imagination in the way we think education should be in the future. Because it, it is, you know, I mean, it's an appalling uh, state we're in, you know, across the whole world. Um, but there are always, in all those darkest moments for people, there are always moments that, as a result of the, the darkness, um, was it, what did Leonard Cohen say? There are always cracks, and that's where the light comes in. And we've got to follow those. And we've got to, like I say now, we've got a big opportunity. You know, online learning is powerful. You know, the other countries across the world, I've seen amazing examples in places like Uruguay. You know, they're, they're really getting into this thing. But it hasn't made teachers redundant. It's just shifted their role, not into, you know, away from passing on knowledge into just passing on a, a passion for learning. You know, it, it's, it's such a simple message. And I hope this, this strangest of times helps us to breed that kind of... Uh, imaginative thinking. I think it's interesting an though. Optimist. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, sorry, Emma, about the evidence. Obviously, we do a lot on evidence and research-based practice, and that's kind of what I've been involved in the last few years. And I had a discussion last night with someone who's involved in that community, and he just said, we don't know. We haven't got a clue. There isn't any evidence or any research to suggest what is the best way of learning in this current situation. The best that they can possibly look at is two or three studies from university from 10 years ago where some people did that. You know, so it's just like you said, you know, flip learning and perhaps they maybe moved out of being, you know, something that was done in the classroom. But who's to say what's the best thing online? Nobody knows. It's actually a great time for creativity for teachers to say, right, let's try this particular pedagogy. Let's try that way of doing it. Because, you know, one thing that it does say on the EEF's guidance report is about that connection and that peer interaction and those relationships are still really important even through a computer screen. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think our kids are more comfortable building relationships digitally than we are. Certainly my generation, we still mistrust it. You know, it, whereas kids, kids are communicating all the time. 
you know, they, they, they get almost as much pleasure out of talking online with someone as the, on their phone or whatever as they do face-to-face, whereas we are championing, oh, it's got to be face-to-face. Well, I'm not sure. You know, if it builds relationships and it builds your self-confidence and your self-belief and achieves the things that Phil was talking about, then let's embrace it. You know, let's, let's get the best bits of it. You see, teaching, teaching is never easy, but I think it can be easier if we just have the courage to, to be imaginative, because it takes courage to be an imaginative. The safe way, and especially when you're exhausted, is you go back to tried and tested, because it works. You know, it's, it's, it's like West Bromwich Albion, Phil. Go back to Sam Allardyce, tried and tested. He's not going to break any, you know, records. He's not going to do the imaginative stuff, but he's going to keep you in the Premier League. Now, and I think we've got to, be bold and be daring and be different. And I don't know what that looks like. People say to me, well, what does that look like, Johnny? Say, I don't know. Threshold adventurers don't know. But they take the step forward, don't they? Into boldness. But, um, you know, let me just tell you one more more quick story. When I, I was in the, I went to Kirby in the 1990s, early 90s. I went into a lesson, a technology lesson. And there's a fella called Dave Hopkinson's a fabulous guy. He'd been at the school for years. In fact, he was one of the old school who came for an interview for a job. And uh, the head said, when can you start? And he said, well, whenever you want. And he said, well, what are you doing now? And he sent him to teach. So he was one of the, that was in the old days, you know, before all these regulations. So (laughs) Dave ends up teaching uh, design technology. What What a great bloke. But I remember I was in the lesson with him and he was doing this great stuff with kids. And this kid came in who'd been away the day before. And, uh, and he said to him, just get the video, the uh, sharpening chisels video. And now this is in the days when video was like, really, nobody had videos except a few people. But what Dave said, I said, what's, the, what's this video? Chisel, how to sharpen a chisel? He said, well, we did sharpening chisels yesterday. And I knew some of the kids were off. So I put a camera at the back and I've recorded the sharpening the chisel bit. He said, I never have to teach that again. He said, now I'll look at it every now and again and think, you know, I think I could do it better than that and I'll redo it. But he said, why why do it all again? He said, I've got other things to do here. I want to get around and talk to the kids. I want to get to know. And now this was in the early 90s. He was doing that kind of stuff. He was easing the burden on himself. The kids were learning better and he was able to give time to building the relationship stuff that Phil just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time for opportunity now because every single thing that we held dear in education has just been absolutely blown out of the water. The, you know, the need to be on site, the need to have everybody in the building at the same set times, you know, everybody learning synchronously together at school, um, you know, the, the assessment, exams, the curriculum, everything's just gone. And, yeah. and, and, when it all the dust settles and all this comes back down again, I think there's so much opportunity for saying we don't have to do what we always did because the argument that it won't work isn't there anymore. You know, now's the time to have the threshold adventure to say, you know, we've kind of blown the roof off everything inadvertently, Mm. (laughs) unexpectedly, but why do we want to kind of rebuild an exact replica of what we had when there's the opportunity to completely rebuild something new and different 
and exciting that may well meet the needs of our children, our communities, our workforce so much better. So I, I think you're absolutely spot on that now, now's the time for adventurous thinking <laughs> rather than... Yeah. And when we get back to the normal, whatever that normal will be like, it's a great opportunity to, to actually reflect upon what we learned. You know, that, that whole idea of when you go on a journey, you know, if we're going to go on a great journey, what are we going to throw overboard? What are we never going to do again? Yeah. And what are we going to keep? And then what are we going to learn from and adapt and, you know, and bring into being? I mean, that's a lovely conversation as soon as we get back to some sort of normality, because there will, I hope there will be a number of things that we now think are sacrosanct that we'll throw overboard. Mm. Loads of them. I think it goes goes back neatly to your why bit as well, re-evaluating your why. So when all this is finished, go back to the why and think what were the things that we really tried to hold on to? Because actually that's the core thing that we really value you know the things that we tried to replicate that we didn't want to get rid of the relationships with the children the kind of the staying in touch and supporting families the ensuring that children didn't fall you know fall by the wayside that they were looked after that they were cared for that they were they felt they were part of something um all of that going forward what we want to hold on to not necessarily prepping them for whatever anyway and you know isn't it isn't it japanese there's a word the word for challenge is the same as the word for opportunity and, um, you know, I think there's a lot of poverty thinking going on at the moment, understandably so. And um, there's also some probability thinking, as I call it, where oh, we'll, it'll all get back to normal and we'll all go back. Won't it be great when we're all back in our own classrooms and we're on and on? But the possibility thinkers, I mean, I'd like them to thrive now to actually start to, like you're doing, you're writing a piece there about the future, to actually start people possibility thinking. What will it be like when? Won't it be fantastic if, you know, complete the sentence and get people to really reflect on what they're learning now and how that's going to affect their their practice in the future. Great opportunity. And I hope heads and leaders are doing that. You know, they're not just surviving. You know, because survival mode, I mean, we are surviving, but we're not surviving just so that we can go back to the old way. You know, we're building a different way here. Uh, I mean, we're calling it the new normal, aren't we? That phrase is even being used now. So what will the new normal be like? I mean, do you know, that was an Olympic phrase, I think, Phil, from coaches, wasn't it? The new normal. Because wasn't it the Atlanta Games when we only won? I think we won one gold medal. Was it Pinsent and... um, Steve Redgrave in the, the rowing. And it was, they called it the games of shame. And, and instead of coming back and beating themselves up, they said, how can we create this new normal? You know, where we actually are one of the best performing nations in the world. And the rest is history. That's where thinking about marginal gains, gains came from, you know, this different definition of high performance and excellence. So, you know, out of that terrible moment in our, in our sporting history, came probably the best era we've ever had the edgy olympic torch needs to be held aloft now so john that's what oh, there's a there's a nice image there's a nice image yeah um, i'm just gonna ask one i'm gonna skip over a couple of questions that we've got there because i'm just aware time's pushing on um but there's one thing i wanted to ask about early career 
because obviously there's swathes of colleagues entering the profession at the moment who are entering it in the strangest of times. So I just wanted to ask you if you could put anything on the curriculum, the kind of core curriculum for an early career teacher, what would you want to have as part of their training? Um, do you mean now before they've arrived in school? Anything, as in, like, we introduce your work in the interview process to get onto our teacher training course. We give them a bit yeah. of your book to read and say, talk about it. But, yeah. all, I mean, any part of early career, either initial training or those kind of first couple of years. Yeah. Um, I used to do an exercise. I haven't done this for ages. Um, I used to say to people in that situation, you know, what is the most, most important thing um, that you're going to give your attention to? when you arrive in school you know for the first time and they all busy putting post-its up i don't do this anymore because i don't like post-its and all that stuff but um they used to write all sorts of things and i'd say Man, nobody nobody's got it and they go well what is it and i used to say where you sit in the staff room and and you could, i could see them looking back at me in surprise and say look make sure very quickly you find out who are the magic weavers in that staff room and hang around with them and, you know, drink in everything they say. You haven't got free time. When you've got a bit of spare time, go and sit at the back of their rooms and just soak it up, you know, just watch and learn. Because what you'll get probably more than anything is a healthy dose of passion for what you do. You know, yes, you'll get tips and you'll get all these other things, but what you'll get is a, a realization that passion is absolutely paramount and that it's infectious, that if you love it, the kids will love it. And if you're relentless in your passion for it, then, you know, the rest, you'll learn, you know, you'll, you'll become proficient. But first of all, hang around with people who love teaching. So that, that's, is that, is that all you wanted or did you want a list? <laughs> We're good with hang around with people who, who actually like teaching. That's a really good tip. Um, which kind of leads me neatly on to pretty much the last question before we talk about what, what you're working on at the moment, which is, do you actually go around and actually kind of spot and go, oh, there's one, like a twitcher, like a magic weaving twitcher. <laughs> go, oh, I've just spotted one over there. I've just spotted one over there. Do you kind of in your work think, that's what they're definitely a magic weaver. Or I've just seen a little bit of magic there. Is it something that you kind of go around and spot? Um, have you heard of Evernote? Yeah. Ever, Evernote's an app. It's, it's a piece yeah. of software where if you have a thought, if you see something, you can write it down. So another bit of advice that I give to people is, because people often say to me, you know, how do you remember all these stories? And how do you remember... I wrote them down. I actually wrote them down because I will not remember them if I don't write them down. So I've, I've got myself somehow now into a discipline of if I see, and, and it is small things, like I said before, you know, you'd be walking down a corridor and, and I, I remember that I, I used this, I think in the book, this teacher just stopped this kid and just said, what I like about you is you're always so smart and walked off. And this kid grew about three, four inches, <laughs> walked up, and obviously walking up along thinking, I mean, this teacher, you know, didn't know this child, didn't teach him rather, but just passed on that little gold, golden nugget. 
And, and so where did that go? Down in my little book, magic weaving phrases, right? I mean, I, I just shared one with you. I heard the other day, the one about offside, you can't explain it, but when you see it, you know it's happened. You know, that's, <laughs> those little things get noted down. So, you know, one, one bit of advice I, I would give is life is building memories. And, you know, if you like, you get to my age now, memories become even more important. You know, that's why, you know, I, I'm doing a bit of work with dementia at the moment. And that's why it's so tragic. We're trying to help people to hold on to those memories. And we're, we're, help, we're, we're using the magic of football, you know, and Everton in the community to, to do these kind of things. Um, but your memories are crucial. And sadly, you won't remember most things unless you find a mechanism for recording them and what i also say to people is when you have a bad day and at the beginning of your career there will be many bad days there'll be bad weeks and when you have those go to your treasure trove and just remind yourself why you do what you do and for me it never failed and so learn to spot them what people say, what they do, little actions, little kind of gestures and all sorts of things, and then collate them. And then, obviously, practice them. I mean, I think, I think, I read a great bit the other day. I can't remember the name of the businessman, but he was very wealthy and he, he got this guru in to help him. And he said to the guru, if you can give me a piece of advice that I find really valuable, I'll give you $25,000 on the spot for it. And so this guy gave him some advice and he handed over the $25,000. And, and of course, everyone's thinking now, and I was thinking, reading, what was the advice? <laughs> and, and he just said, in the morning, write down three things that you've got to do that day and do them. That's it. And I thought, you know what, that's... That's, that's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, it's, once again, it's in that bleeding obvious category. But it's not ten things. It's three things. And do them. Get it, get Everything it. else takes second place to that little list. And do them. Now, on that list, I would always say, practice doing something like walking past the child and saying, what I like about you is... What I like about you is, what I like about you is. It will, for a while, be a narrative that is only first nature to you. You're practicing it. But one day, if you do it relentlessly, it will become second nature. And you'll just find it coming out your mouth. And suddenly, you're magic weaving. And you're not even thinking about it. And I think, in my simplistic way, that's how you change the world. Definitely. And I, I just think about the staff at my school where I was the head. That's the kind of thing we did all the time. Just walk around and find good things to say to kids and make them smile and make them feel like they were noticed and worth something and great. Because yeah. it was great to have them there. We were gen you know, genuinely yeah. loved. Genuinely loved them. Yeah. Let, let, me, let me finish the footnote to that story, what I like about you is. Because I often I tell this in my talk sometimes is one kid stopped this teacher one day and said, hey, sir, what I like about you is, you're always saying what I like about you is. <laughs> Full circle, brilliant. So 
we've been talking for, for a while now um, about your old book, your uh, the Magic Weaving book. What are you currently working on? What What are your current projects? I'm on I'm on chapter seven of eleven. Oh. Um, on a book on leadership. What I did when I wrote The Magic Weaving Business is I kind of promised myself it would be a trilogy, that the second one would be not specifically about teaching in a classroom, if you like, but about leadership. Although, to me, it's the same things and the same principles. And then the third one, and I might change my mind on this, would be a more systemic one, you know, about changing the world. So that's the general message of the book that, these are the things that we can hope to do. And if you do that, you'll have an ole moment. Pipeline where people can see you, find you, see more. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually now. I'm getting into the world of uh, digital pres presentations. I mean, I've got a request from the United States, from Malaysia, um, from China, to do keynotes and and stuff online, and and I've never done this. Um, and I remember I was over in Kuala Lumpur two years ago. And uh, I shared a stage with Sir Ken Robinson, you know, um, my hero. And, uh, and he's a great guy, Ken. I mean, he became, we asked him, I'm the chair of governors of the Everton Free School and Football College, um, which is an amazing school. We've got 200 students. Um, what, what Everton, I mean, I say this unashamedly, but it, Everton is probably, if not amongst the best, if not the best, it's amongst the best community uh, charities certainly in sport in um, in Europe really um, I mean we, we win all sorts of awards it's an amazing amazing operation and it's a delight for me to be involved and one of the things that they were very passionate about is education amongst you know things like I mentioned dementia and uh, you know we work with army veterans the disabled all sorts of things going on but um, one of the things was we were very concerned about the numbers of kids who were being permanently excluded Teenagers particularly were roaming the streets. So we thought, what about if we have a school? Um, because when they first asked me to help them uh, with their bid team to, to write the bid for the school, I thought, well, I don't know where I stand politically on free schools, and I don't think the world needs a school for elite footballers. But, but you know, they, what they wanted was a school. I remember one of them used the phrase, a school for the disappeared, the kids who've been thrown away. And I thought, well, now you're talking my kind of language. So we put the bid in and we've, we became the first, I think, Premier League club in the world to have its own school. And I'm proud to be chair of governors. And, um, you know, we, we kind of, uh, that project has just allowed me to, to just, you know, we're trying out all sorts of things. The wonderful thing about it is um, 
we worried about how it would be received with the Liverpool head teachers, but of course it's greatly helping because these are kids who are courting permanent exclusion and we'll take them from the school and then we'll support them and help them. And um, what's happened is there's now a demand for us to go, I mean, it's 14 to 16, the alternative provision, but they're now asking us, can we take some of the year nine kids? But what's also happened is we've built this great sixth form now and kids are coming into the sixth form who don't require alternative provision education. They just want to do sport or football or a B-Tech in something or other. And uh, we're encouraging, obviously, our alternative provision kids to move into sixth form. But what we've also done last year, we've now developed that into a degree. So these kids can, from being potentially permanently excluded, are now getting back into education. They're, they're thriving. They get into the sixth form and they go on to do a degree. And boy, the day we get our first kid through all the way to degree level, and it's not far off now, will be a day of celebration. So what I did is I was explaining this to Sir Ken. That's why I mentioned him. And uh, we asked him if he'd be the patron. So what we did, because he lived in Los Angeles, Ken, and uh, he's got his, on, on the paving stone at the front door of the school, it's got his handprint and his name you know like they do in uh, in beverly hills yeah so anyway all of that is saying i was in koala lumper and ken um comes on the screen because he wasn't there in person like me and he's in his bedroom and he, he said i have to keep my head still he said because and he went like that and his central heating little switch thing he said i've got to keep that out the <laughs> so but he did the, this amazing presentation online um from his bedroom in Los Angeles. And uh, so I talked to him about, you know, I, I, am I comfortable doing, I mean, even, I mean, I even feel uncomfortable doing this, you know. Oh, that's No, I don't, no, I don't mean it. it's troubling me, but it's, it's different, isn't it? Normally I've got somebody sat in front of me, but I'm getting, actually, and it, this, it's, talk, I've had so many meetings on Zoom now, I kind of stop feeling I'm on Zoom anymore. And then I'm actually at a meeting, which is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm sure that goes for kids that they'll feel they're not on a computer. They're actually in a classroom now with a teacher. So I'm, I'm trying to get used to the idea that I'm going to go online in China and Malaysia and America and do these training events and so on. I just hope they let me see the audience. I mean, there's nothing worse than for instance, cracking a joke and nobody laughs. I mean, that's like, that's like a kick in the chin. Well, that's even worse. I went to do a talk in Brussels and there all these ranked people and they all had headphones on. And of course, they're getting it translated into whatever language. they. So you'd crack a joke and no one would laugh. And then when you a minute later, you'd get to the serious bit and everyone would start laughing. So there was a staccato effect. Very strange. Oh, I love it. So that, that's the future. And of course, I'm desperately trying to finish the book so that I can get that out. You are at Sir John F. Jones. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. See, I didn't even know it. <laughs> See, I'll just, be, I'll just do your admin for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your admin girl. But yeah. so, thank you so much, Sir John. Phil, have you got any final comments? Anything you wanted to add? Because I am just stunned. 
<laughs> it depends how long it depends how long you've got because I was just good, but I don't want to keep uh, you know Sir John for much longer. But I, one thing that stuck with me is obviously I'm working in disadvantaged communities as you did for many years. And what I loved when you came in and talked to us was about this idea that you can work in disadvantaged communities and be a missionary and just you know pat heads and wipe noses and just get through. Well, you talked about you know the, the story about the fleas in the jar and removing the paper and saying that you know there's nothing to stop you being a magic weaver that your results should automatically go down you can still push them can't you and you can still not put limits on kids in those areas absolutely and and you know what that card off the jar thing teacher assessment you know for exams is one huge step forward in lifting the card off that jar because you know a teacher who works like you phil when you're coaching players you get to know you, you've got to be over a couple of years and watch them in all sorts of different situations and different games and their personalities. And you know of what they're capable. And so when you assess them, it's assessed from some great depth of knowledge about this person's ability at your subject or whatever. And, and to say that trusting an examination in an afternoon for one hour can match that is absurd. But what, what I'm what I'm a passionate about with teacher assessment is all the kids get a great chance. I mean, that algorithm, you know, I think parents were surprised that the authorities actually fail a quota of kids. Mm. I think parents were surprised. I mean, one parent stopped me, said, hang on a minute. She said, do you mean if you do really well, but actually you're not in the percentage of kids who are going to get through the, uh, the threshold, you'll fail. And she said to me, that's like going for a driving test and doing really well. But at the end of the day, the guy's saying to you, well, I'm sorry, you were gonna pass, but we've already passed our quota for today, so you fail. And I said, yeah, that's pretty much what it's like. She said, so we, we systematically every year fail a cohort of kids. And I said, yeah, and sadly, they're the kids who come from the most challenging, most of them come from the most challenging circumstances with all the disadvantages that that entails. So, you know, I would really love to see uh, a system that was filled with justice where you trusted the professionals who've worked with these kids to say, this kid is capable of this. Just writing something down, John, in my little Evernote thing. <laughs> About a system filled with justice, just doing a little <laughs> magic weaving moment there. <laughs> Genuinely did. <laughs> we can all use that one, credit that to the big fella. <laughs> oh, anything else, Phil, that you've got to ask? Because I've gone through my questions. But no, I mean, this is the beauty, the beauty of this conversation is, and you know, does shameless plug for own book at this point. But, you know, the conversations that we have on here that aren't necessarily written down anywhere or the accepted wisdom of the profession via whatever medium it is, these conversations are really, really important. And obviously, when I quote you, John, I will make sure that uh, I, I check with your publishers and reference you first. But, you know, this is just gold, isn't it, here? I've written, I've written two, two, two and a bit pages I've written here so far. Oh, my. Superb. That's the difference between you and me, Phil. I've written one sentence. You've written two pages. <laughs> oh, yes. Listen, I've still got my notes from uh, August the 20th, 2000 and, where it was, 2003. Um, for when it came, I, dug, I dug it out. I dug it out. I dug it out. I've still got it. This is, this is what I'm like. It's on the bookshelf. 
I made loads of notes that day. You know, I've still got, I've told you, I've got all the anecdotes. I've got everything. The good news is teachers make the difference. The bad news is teachers make the difference. There you go. You see, this is gold. Oh, funny. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure this afternoon. I've, I can tick this one off my bucket list. I've actually managed to speak to Sir John Jones face to face. So thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy, an absolute joy. Highlight. Really, really enjoyed it, Emma. Thanks for making me feel so comfortable. And thanks very much, Phil. Great to see you again. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers.